0: In, KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writers' Block. My name is Lori Ostlin. In 2009, I received the Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers' Award, the only national literary award dedicated to supporting women writers exclusively. My co recipients are Krista Bremer, Vivie Francis, Janice N. Harrington, Helen Phillips, and Heidi Steidelmeier. Today, I'm going to read from the beginning of the story Talking Foul with My Father from my recently released collection, The Bigness of the World, which won the 2008 Flannery O'Connor Award for short fiction. Talking Foul with My Father One. Turkey. A circular argument. My father wants to know what I had for lunch today. I haven't called in months, but this is what interests him. I had a turkey sandwich, I say. Turkey, he says with clear disgust. Last year, my father's doctor gave him a list of safe foods, foods recommended for someone in my father's condition. Turkey was high on the list. My father has never liked turkey, except at Thanksgiving and only then, because it comes with all sorts of things that he does like. Fatty skin swaddled in strips of bacon, mashed potatoes, gravy, rolls and butter, ham, yes, ham. My father has always managed to treat turkey as the annoying but harmless relative who shows up once a year on the holiday. But now, now turkey has become my father's enemy. Of course he has numerous reasons for not liking turkey, first among them being that he likes beef. And while this might not seem like a reason, it is what my father tells me whenever I ask him why he doesn't like turkey. Because I like beef, he says. It's not an either-or question, I say. It's like salt and pepper— You can like both of them. Now, if turkey and beef are sitting in a room alone and someone says you can pick only one thing from the room, okay, then it's true. You can have turkey or you can have beef. But this isn't like that. Geraldine and I just spent our 10th anniversary in Greece, two blissful weeks walking where Plato and Socrates once walked, both of us nearly in tears at the thought of it. And here I am, one month later, having this conversation. Reason number two because it is on his list. Reason number three, because my baby brother, whom he considers henpecked, eats turkey and some guise or other for dinner every night, or so my father claims. The one time that Geraldine and I visited my brother and his wife at their overly child-proofed house in a suburb of the Twin Cities, the four of us and their five children ate lunch together, turkey sloppy joes for the record, while discussing the pros and cons of my brother's retirement plan. As he spoke, he stared at Geraldine as though he couldn't quite figure out who she was or how she had come to be sitting at his wood veneer table. His wife, whom I was meeting for the first and what would turn out to be the only time, said very little during the meal. But when I reached for the water pitcher, she noticed my raggedy fingernails and broke her silence to announce bitterly that my brother chewed not just his fingernails, but his toenails as well addressing her complaints specifically to me as though this were some sort of Lindquist family conspiracy for which I was equally answerable. Geraldine and I flew back to San Francisco that evening when I called my father several weeks later to tell him that we had made it home safely. The first thing he wanted to know was what my sister-in-law had served for lunch. Sloppy Joes, I told him, and there was a short pause of disappointment before my father, who has never cooked anything in his life, replied triumphantly. I'll bet they were turkey. You know, all she gives him is turkey. It is worth noting that the two parts of my father's argument regarding the state of my brother's diet and marriage are interchangeable, that both can and do function as conclusion or premise, depending on what we are arguing about, whether my father is trying to convince me that my brother does eat turkey every day or that he is, indeed, henpecked. Argument A. My brother is henpecked because he eats turkey every day. In this argument, my father is demonstrating that my brother is henpecked, and so the daily eating of turkey becomes his first and only premise, one that he nonetheless shores up amply. Turkey breasts, burgers, chili lasagna, everything's turkey with her. Argument B. Because my brother is henpecked, he eats turkey every day. "'Occasionally one of us, usually me, but sometimes my sister, "'will be foolish enough to suggest "'that our brother does not eat turkey every single day. "'My father, in this case, cites as proof "'the fact that my brother is henpecked. "'his argument's succinct and unshakable. "'Of course he does. "'She doesn't even let him wipe his own ass.'" Two, broasted chicken, a study in semantics. "'The cafe in Fentonville has two broasted chicken specials,' "'my father begins the conversation.' not bothering with more standard pleasantries. Mashed potatoes, a roll with butter, gravy, some kind of vegetable or other. It is as though he is reading love poetry over the phone, his voice greedy and helpless. I try to recall what broasted chicken is, how it differs from roasted chicken, what the addition of the B actually means. But the word has been dropped into the conversation with such ease that I know I cannot ask him to explain. Broasted chicken, he would reply automatically, the words so familiar to him that they are their own definition. Then, after the slightest pause, he would say it again, broasted chicken, asserting the words in a way that means both you never visit and what kind of world do you live in. It is true that I visit infrequently, once every three or four years, just as it is true that I live in a world devoid of broasted chicken, which is not to say that there are no broasted chickens in San Francisco. Of course there are. There would have to be. Sometimes, when I've not called my father in a particularly long time, he will begin the conversation by announcing, a lot has changed. Then he will proceed to fill me in on events that happened years ago as a way of making clear my neglectfulness. Your sister got married, he will say, though my sister has been married for seven years and has two boys, odd little fellows who refuse to speak to me on the telephone because they are busy cutting. Each boy has his own cutting box, a cigar box in which he keeps a pair of blunt-ended scissors and his most recent clippings, advertisements for cereal and batteries, as well as carefully snipped photos of dead ducks and elk from his father's hunting magazines. When I ask to speak to them, my sister holds out the receiver and I hear Trevor, who just turned six, saying, tell her to call when we're not cutting. All they do is cut, my father complains, My sister has told me that they are afraid of my father, afraid of his largeness, of the way that his feet seem poured into his shoes, the flesh straining against the laces, so that they can no longer be tied. They are afraid of the way that he falls asleep talking and then awakens with a start a moment later, screaming, what, when they have said nothing, because anger has become his most immediate response. I doubt you'd even recognize this place, my father says at other times. Referring to Morton, the town where I grew up, the town where he has always lived, except for a brief period just after high school when the army borrowed him. This was in 1945 at the very end of the war, which was over before he got any farther away than Florida. But something about this experience put him off of the world. unnerved him so much that he forgot about college and went immediately back to Morton, picking up where he had left off, helping my grandfather run his hardware store and eventually taking it over himself. He continued to read, preferring characters to actual people, and maintained an extensive library, which he housed in our basement, choosing the only room that was windowless, as though having so many books were something best kept secret. Still, the outside world worked its way in, entering through small fissures in the house's foundation that grew larger over time, filling our basement with water. Spring was particularly insidious, for as the snow outside slowly melted, the water level rose within, gradually, as though a tap had been turned on somewhere within the bowels of the house, a tap that none of us could locate, left open to a small but unstoppable trickle. For many years, it was our job, my siblings and mine, to mop up the standing water. But as we got older, we procrastinated a bit more each time until finally our parents grew tired of our laziness, tired of their own nagging, and laid down thick carpeting throughout the entire basement, a cheap urine-colored shag that they said would act as a giant sponge. And in this way, our basement was turned over to the mold. Throughout my childhood, I liked my father's library better than any other room in the house, like the moldy smell of books that hung in the air and clung to my clothing. In fact, I considered this the natural odor of books and wondered, each time I checked out a book from the school library, what they had done wrong that caused their books to smell as they did of paper and ink in the sweatiness of children's hands. My father proceeds to give me an oral tour of Morton over the phone, block by block, resident by resident, as though proving my absence to me. We've got Amish now, he tells me. Dan Klimek's got them working out at the cardboard plant he put in just east of town. But when I ask who Dan Klimek is, my father uses the voice that he would use to explain broasted chicken to me if I were foolish enough to ask. Dan Klimek, Danny Klimek, of course you know Danny Klimek, he says, his voice startled and angry, the syllables like waves beating frantically against the shore. This is a metaphor that would make no sense to my father, for he has lived his life surrounded by lakes and ponds, placid bodies of water, whose waves do not beat or pound or crash, but rather lap gently at the shore, a steady, soothing sound, like that of a cat drinking milk." Somehow, almost unintentionally, I became a teacher, a profession of which my father greatly disapproves, considering it a waste of my talents and, on some level, suspect. Teachers and preachers, he is fond of saying, never pay their bills. For several years, I taught high school English, which is how I met Geraldine, but eventually I grew tired of counting my successes in such meager ways, and so I quit and began instead to teach English to adults, to foreigners who need me and thus nod patiently when I require that they answer, how are you, with well, even though out in the real world, people are quick to correct them, explaining, you need to say good. Well just sounds like you're kind of depressed. I begin class each Monday morning with a vocabulary quiz, testing them on words that we have encountered over the semester and compiled into a list, adding to it daily and occasionally winnowing it down, letting drop those words and expressions that might have meant something to them back home, where they were pilots and geneticists and science teachers, but contribute nothing to their lives here. They're not lazy people, my students. But on Monday mornings, overwhelmed by the week ahead, after a weekend spent delivering pizzas and cleaning houses, they become lazy. They become lazy, and in their laziness they write things like, Threaten is to make a threat, and... A shoplifter is someone who shoplifts, knowing, of course, that I will mark their answers wrong, that I will write in the margins next to them. A word cannot be used to define itself. Three, the pheasant as overt symbol. My father wants to FedEx me a pheasant. A pheasant, I say. I doubt that FedEx delivers poultry. Pheasants aren't poultry, he corrects me. English teachers should know such things. They're foul, but they are not poultry. "'Poultry is domestic. I shot this bird myself out near the pond on Lecander's farm. "'For the last year, according to my sister, my father has been using a broom as a cane, "'bristles up, leaning heavily as he goes from bedroom to kitchen, from kitchen to bathroom. "'I am fairly sure that this is the first broom he has ever held in his life. "'This is the same man, after all, whose mother washed his hair for him until he was 40, "'which is when he married my mother and she took over the task.' When, I ask, keeping my voice casual, when did you shoot it? How would I know when I shot it, he replies impatiently. Well, when was the last time that you hunted, I ask, feigning ignorance. I know the answer to this. Know that he has not hunted in five years because my brother-in-law, Mike, who used to take my father hunting, stopped hunting five years ago after his brother while looking up and tracking a flock of mallards with his eyes, tripped over a rock and discharged his gun into Mike's buttocks. The doctors were able to extricate all of the shot, but for weeks sitting had been uncomfortable, if not downright painful, which meant that Mike had also had to endure the embarrassment of explaining to his clients why he suddenly preferred to stand during sales calls. Mike is a fertilizer salesman in Fargo, North Dakota, a description that here in San Francisco sounds like the setup for a joke. But in Fargo, where he and my sister really do live and where he really does sell fertilizer, Having a sister-in-law who lives in San Francisco with her girlfriend is considered just as funny. I like my brother-in-law, whom I have only met twice, both times during visits that Geraldine and I made to Fargo. The first time we shook hands and he said that I was like a plague of locusts, visiting once every seven years. I laughed because it was funny and sort of true, wondering whether the illusion was inspired by religion or profession. I suspected the latter, Locust plagues struck me as the sort of thing that a fertilizer salesman from North Dakota would know about. Locusts are actually the only invertebrates considered kosher, said Geraldine, addressing both of us, though she and Mike had not yet been introduced. Really, I said, and then, Mike, this is Geraldine. They nodded at each other in a decidedly Midwestern way, though Geraldine is anything but Midwestern. Yes, not all species, of course, she continued, her tone turning cautionary. "'Actually, I believe that only the Yemeni Jews "'still know how to determine which species are kosher. "'Are you Jewish?' Mike asked Geraldine, "'who, despite the deceptive first name, is Jewish, "'though Jewish strictly in the "'isn't it interesting that locusts are kosher sense.' "'Yes,' she replied, culturally speaking. "'Mike nodded deeply as though this were a distinction "'of relevance in Fargo, North Dakota. "'Later that afternoon, as we sat playing with the boys, "'my sister turned to Geraldine and said, "'I hear you're Jewish.' News travels fast, I said. Jewish, said Mike's mother, who was also visiting for the day, though in her case, from just 60 miles away, a town called Florence, which is where Mike grew up. Florence, North Dakota, my sister had informed me, was even smaller than Morton, about a third the size, which put the population at around 70 people, two of whom were sitting here in front of me. There was something vaguely impressive about this. You know about the Holocaust, Mike's mother said? I could see that Geraldine was bothered by this question, and she remained so even later, when I explained to her what I knew to be the truth. It wasn't that Mike's mother believed Geraldine might actually be unaware of the Holocaust, but rather that she was establishing her own awareness, broaching the subject the way that we are taught to where I come from, by turning knowledge into a question. Of course, only I could tell that Geraldine was annoyed. When she answered, her voice was gentle, reassuring. Yes, she told Mike's mother she did know about the Holocaust. And Mike's mother nodded, pressing the back of her fork tines against the crumbs of her rhubarb cake. It was a terrible thing, she said. To subscribe to The Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.